and really looking at the Reformation. So for those of you who've been in the room a few days, this will be familiar to you if you're visiting for the first time or coming in for the first time today you might want a bit of background so just to say so 30 AD is um, when Jesus dies on the cross now the reformation which is what we're looking at today happens in 1517 so as you can see the reformation is much much closer in time to us than it is to um, when Jesus died however we are in a very culturally different time and if you've been in the in for the last few days we've heard some of um, some of the uh, cultural context of the reformation and some of the difference in the church at the time so what we have in the reformation is in the west we largely had the catholic church that spanned all the way up to 1517 and what we have in 1517 is really um, a group of people who wanted to go back and reclaim really some of the key principles of the gospel and really um, reclaim the joy that lay at the heart of the Christian faith. And what we have is the introduction of the Protestant church. So you can see the P and the C there for the Catholic church. So what first thing to say is um, most of you who are coming to this conference will probably be from a Protestant background. That's probably the sort of church that you're from. Um, but that's not to say that people in the Catholic church are not also Christians um, in many that they they will be as well so here we go so we've been looking at the five solas this week so if you've been in here before you will um we will, we've done christ alone yesterday we looked at faith alone andrew looked at grace alone and this morning we're going to be looking to look at scripture alone now you might be looking at that and thinking we're using the word alone and yet there's five alones how can that be possible so um just to say that all of these things were very much still at the heart of the church before the Reformation. So they still believed that salvation was through Christ. They still believed that salvation was by faith. They still believed in the grace that came from Jesus dying on the cross. But they added extra things in. So it wasn't by grace alone. They also believed that you had to, to pray to saints. They believed that Mary and the saints were involved in salvation. It wasn't by faith alone. They believed that we had to do things. We had to work um, to bring about our salvation as well. It wasn't through Christ alone. They were praying to saints. And um, we saw that in the story of Luther, didn't we, where he, he called out, to St. Anne. It, it's not that those, these things weren't involved at all in the, Christian, in the Christian faith, but they believed that they needed extra things as well. So that's just a little bit of background um, to what we're going to be doing this morning. So in a minute, I'm going to be um, asking Glenn to come and speak to us. This is Glenn Scrivener. He is a brilliant Bible teacher. Um, he's an evangelist. He's a spoken word artist. And if you're um, interested in some of the things um, that he does or after speaking today, you want to look in, into him a bit more, he runs speaklife.org.uk. Is that right? So you can look online and see some of the other things he's doing. So can you please give Glenn a really, really warm welcome? Uh, thank you guys very much. Really great to be with you. I'd love to pray for us. Can I pray for us that we would uh, not just learn about a reformation in history, but we would all experience a reformation in our hearts. That's what I really want. Not just to, to learn more stuff about the past, but as we study history, may the same truths impact our hearts. Can we pray for that? Let's do that now. Our Father, we praise you that we can call you Father, that by grace alone, through faith alone, we've been adopted into Christ and brought to you as children of that same Heavenly Father. And we praise you, Father, today. And we pray that as your children, you would send again the gift of your Holy Spirit that we might understand your word as it proclaims the truths of the gospel. And would you liberate us? Would you give us such joy 
and such peace in Jesus that gives us a confidence to walk from this place as reformed people who want to seek the reformation of all society, bring everything under the feet of the Lord Jesus. Please, by your scriptures, confront us and raise us up that we might be servants of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we've been thinking about these solas. If, uh, if you were reading this in Latin, you would be reading this in Latin, and it would say solus Christus and sola gratia and things like that. But we're not. Because we've had a Reformation, I'm going to do it in English, okay? So Christ alone. This is the truth that it is Jesus who has worked our salvation for us entirely without any help or cooperation from us whatsoever. We only contribute to the problem. He does everything. So by Christ alone we are saved and it is by grace alone that Jesus is offered to us. It is not because we are just such uh, lovely people that Christ can't help himself. It's not that he can't help himself seeing a damsel in distress like us. It's only because of his prior love and grace and mercy that he gives himself for us. It is to be received by faith alone. So we receive Jesus, not by rooting around in our pockets and saying, well, what do I owe you, Jesus, for all the good stuff that you've given me? Uh, There's nothing you can owe him. There's nothing you can give to him. All you give to him are your problems, your sins, and he does it all. So we receive this gift by faith alone. Today we're thinking about all of this is told to us in the scriptures alone. We don't need popes and councils and great theologians in order to sit above the Bible and tell us what it means. Actually, the Bible goes on top and tells us these wonderful truths. And when we put the Bible in its proper place on top, then all the rest of these truths fall out and everything, therefore, is to God's glory alone. Uh, The giver gets the glory, right? And because God does everything, he gets all the credit, okay? So all the credit for salvation goes to God alone. These are the great five uh, solas, the great five alone statements of the Reformation. And I like to think of it uh, in many ways like the story of David and Goliath. Uh, Let me read to you a few verses from 1 Samuel chapter 17. Uh, And this this really helps me to think through what the gospel is all about, actually. Uh, You might know the story in 1 Samuel chapter 17. The Philistines are on one side of the valley, and the Israelites are lined up on the other side of the valley, ready for battle. And then in verse 8 of 1 Samuel 17, Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man, a champion even. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul, the king, and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. But step forward, David the true king who's just been anointed as king in the previous chapter. He steps forward and he becomes this other man, this other champion to take Israel's side and to bring the victory in the name of Israel. And so really, David is anointed back in 1 Samuel chapter 16. Anointed, another way you could say that is he was messiahed or he was Christed. Okay, David is Christ with a little c in this chapter. He steps forward and he's painting us this pencil sketch of what Jesus would do in the fullness of time. 
And it's David alone who brings the victory on that day. Can you think, if, if you were an Israelite soldier who was lined up behind David, you know, it would not matter if you were this, you know, these incredible cheerleaders saying, you can do it, David, yes, you can, you can do it, David, yes, you can. That would not matter, would it? I mean, you could be really behind David, really urging him on, or you could be asleep. Wouldn't matter, would it? David alone brings the victory. You remember the story, don't you? David goes out, not with the armor of the flesh, but he goes out trusting in the name of the Lord alone, and with his little slingshot, kills the head of the house of the wicked. Now, that's interesting. Goliath is this superhuman enemy of God's people. He is the head of the house of the wicked. He even wears, if you read in 1 Samuel 17, he even wears scale armor. So we're thinking he's a bit serpentine. Okay, who is, who is Goliath in this story? This superhuman enemy of God's people. He defies the ranks of Israel, accuses the brethren day and night for 40 days and 40 nights. That's interesting, isn't it? For 40 days and 40 nights, this superhuman enemy of God's people who reminds us of a serpent is accusing, accusing, accusing the brethren. So who is Goliath? He's like this great Satan figure, isn't he? And no one in Israel can take on Goliath for a single second in their own strength. Even Saul, their own king, who is a head taller than anyone else in Israel, he cannot take on Goliath. Nobody takes on Goliath. And yet the Christ takes on Goliath in our name and on our behalf, and he does it. It's David alone who brings the victory. And that reminds us of this truth of the Reformation. It's Christ alone who steps into the breach and he faces off against the accuser of the brethren. He faces off against this serpentine figure, this superhuman enemy of God's people, and he brings the victory all by himself. Praise Jesus. Jesus alone. And then we see this this truth. It's by grace alone. You know, David's brothers did not deserve for David to come and fight for them. David's brothers actually were trying to diminish David, and they were teasing their little brother. The brothers of David did not deserve for David to step in. It wasn't David's fight to fight. He was meant to be off with the sheep, but he, he volunteers, and he comes to do it by grace alone, not because of the goodness of Israel, but because of the grace of his own heart. So it's by David alone, through grace alone, and it's through faith alone. Again, the, the Israelites who are lined up behind David, they do not contribute a single calorie of effort to the victory, do they? Do they contribute a single calorie of effort to this victory? Not at all. I often think about this in, in, in the summer because I'm a, I'm a cricket fan and I'm from Australia and, uh, and I pick up your newspapers in this country to read about the cricket because that's a proper sport, right? Pro- do we have any cricket tragics here? Few, yeah, like three, Okay. <laughs> That's the problem with this country, okay? You, you open up your newspapers to read about the proper sport called cricket, and yet what do you end up reading all about? Is that you, you still read about football in the off-season. Do you know why you read about football in the off-season? Because everyone is obsessed with the transfer markets, aren't they? And the transfer markets are these ridiculous things that are based on the myth of the one man. Let me tell you the myth of the one man. The myth of the one man is this. Somewhere out there, there is a player of such unparalleled talent that no amount of money is too stupid to spend on this teenager from Brazil or Spain or Italy. And the myth is that this one player will come into your team no matter how terrible your team is. 
And he will turn things entirely around. He will completely transform the dressing room. He will get onto the pitch. He will score in every goal. He will bring you up the league. He will take you through the cup. And it's a total myth, but imagine that it happens. And imagine that you've always believed in this one man. You've always thought he was the one who was going to do it. And he comes into your team and he actually does the thing. He, he actually performs the miracle. He has this wonder season. And he scores in every single game and he takes you up the league. He takes you through the cup. And there you are at Wembley. Imagine it. And there you are. And, and in the final minute of this game, this one man scores twice to snatch victory from the jaws of defeat. And what are you feeling like in that moment? You know, footballers say over the moon, but that, that is such an understatement, isn't it? You are euphoric, aren't you? You're jumping up and down. You're, you know, you have done nothing to get this victory, have you? I mean, shouting, referee, every 90 seconds probably has not helped in the cause. Do you think? You have not expended a calorie of effort in the victory, but oh, you happen to be wearing the same color t-shirt as this guy, right? And he scores the goal, and you jump up and down, and you start hugging other people who are also wearing the same t-shirt as you, and you're over the moon, aren't you? You're absolutely thrilled. This is how we feel about Jesus, isn't it? Because what has Jesus come? What has Jesus done? He has come, and he has been the one man who has come into Team Earth to turn things all around. And he has scored the winner against every enemy that gets the better of us. You know, temptation gets the better of us. Jesus scores the victory over temptation. Sickness gets the better of us. And Jesus reverses it. All these enemies, chaos in nature, gets the better of us. And Jesus, with a word, calms the storm. And Jesus just goes through the Gospels. It's this wonder season. The one man who comes to reverse everything. And at the end, he even takes on our biggest enemy, the, this scaly superhuman giant, Satan himself. He takes on death and hell and judgment. And the crowd goes silent because Good Friday looks like a, a, a black dead loss. And then bursting forth from the grave on Easter Sunday, up comes Jesus. And he does that thing that footballers do. You know when footballers, they score the goal and they sort of tap the, the badge on their shirt to say, it's for you. It's for you. And Jesus, he rises up from the dead and he comes to us who have not contributed a calorie of effort. And he comes to us and he says, it's for you. It's for you. It's for you. And we find ourselves swept up in the euphoria. And that's faith. <laughs> that is faith. We recognize our connection with our champion Jesus. And by faith alone, we are swept up into his victory. All of this is to God's glory alone. He has done it all through his Messiah, his Christ, Jesus. And we learn about all this through Scripture alone. And this is the topic for today. Scripture alone tells us of these sorts of things. So if we're there on the day of this battle between David and Goliath, what is Scripture? What is the Bible in this situation? Well, there are two different ways you could see Scripture uh, in this way. Quite often, people see Scripture as though um, this is the, uh, the drill sergeant yelling at the troops, telling them to be harder in order to defeat Goliath, right? You could, you could view the Scriptures that way, couldn't you? You could view the Scriptures as this yelling drill sergeant who's getting in the face of the new recruits, saying, are you hard enough? You've got to take on Goliath. Come on. Be harder. Be stronger. Be more sold out for Jesus. Is, is that what the Bible is? Far more. Here's what the Scriptures are. Far more what the Scriptures are. Here is a herald 
that is telling you of the victory of your champion. That's what this is, okay? Imagine yourself in the sandals of an Israelite soldier, and there you are. Maybe you're a bit sunburnt. You're a bit depressed. Goliath, he's been coming out for 40 days and 40 nights, and, and you are just defeated. You are dismayed and running away. Even King Saul was dismayed and running away. That's you and me. And you know what the scriptures are? The scriptures are like a herald from the battle scene. And what does the herald do? The herald just says, look, look, did you just see what Jesus did? Did you see that? That's what the scriptures are doing on page after page after page after page. Yeah, I know you're sunburnt. I know you've got trench foot or something. I know you've got blisters. I know you're feeling dismayed. But did you see what Jesus just did? Would you look? Would you look? Would you look again? That's what these scriptures are doing. You see, if after Jesus gets his victory, if we are not running over the top shouting for joy, it can only be because we haven't seen Jesus win or we don't understand our connection to him. But if you see Christ's victory and you understand your connection with your champion, then you'll shout, then you'll go over the top. Then you'll know that victory. And this has been given to you for that very purpose. To say, in yourself, you cannot take on Goliath. In Christ, you have the victory. That is what these scriptures are for. And when these scriptures were unleashed in the 15th and then 16th century, when these scriptures were unleashed, it brought about such joy, such release, such liberation, we're still feeling the ripple effects from what this book did when people started to read it as a herald of Christ's victory and not just as the drill sergeant telling you what to do. Let me tell you a little story about my own uh, journey, my own reformation, if you like. Uh, I, was, I was a medieval teenager, okay? Uh, growing up, I went, to, I went to church, Sunday school, Youth groups, kids clubs, getting my Bible in every way I could. I was the good kid in your youth group. I really was. The hand in the air. If you went with the answer, Jesus, you were probably onto a winner. I knew that. But I didn't really get it. I didn't get any of this stuff that we've just been talking about. And I remember going to a Christian convention, uh, aged 13 years old, and I remember the, the preacher getting up and telling us that we needed to be more sold out for Jesus, more on fire for Jesus, and anyone who wants to press in and, and, and give their lives again to Jesus, then do it then. And, and, and I kind of thought, well, I, I think I've given my life to Jesus like plenty of times. I keep on praying, but this preacher seemed to think that those particular words at that particular juncture were really important. So I prayed those particular words at that particular juncture. And I went forward and didn't feel any different. I definitely expected to feel different. Let me give you an idea of the kind of kid that I, I was. When I was growing up, I remember I was, I was about 10 years old and I was in church and I'd just been yawning. Okay, <laughs> um, I usually found church a bit more exciting than that, but I, I had just yawned and so my eyes were glistening. I I'd kind of welled up. And I looked across the way and I saw someone else, I saw this, this older woman looking at me with tears in my eyes. And in that moment, I chose to believe that she was impressed by my religious devotion. Who knows what she was thinking about? She probably just saw me yawning and, and thought, you know, Glenn, wake up. But I chose to believe that she was impressed by my religious devotion. And something in my head went, crying makes you seem serious for Jesus. I know. 
And next week, I tried to cry again. And the week after, and the week after that, I tried to cry in worship because didn't that show the world that I was truly serious about God? Of course, the way I tried to cry in church was by trying to yawn more, which probably gave the exact opposite of the impression that I was going for. But in my head, it was very important, very important to be seen, to be serious about Jesus. And so when the preacher, when I was age 13, when the preacher told me to give my life, to, of course I gave my life to Jesus, and yet I didn't feel any different. I definitely expected to feel different. And I remember running back to my cabin and going into the bathroom, turning on the light to see if there was, I don't know, a halo above my head or a light behind my eyes or something that would be different. And so I thought, I, I mustn't have said it quite right. And so I prayed again the next day, making sure I really meant it this time. And again, nothing. I mean, I checked. I went to the mirror. I looked and nothing, no halo. And so I prayed again and 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 I prayed again. I think in my teenage years, I prayed to give my life to Jesus a thousand times. I really think I did. Age 13, all throughout my teenage years, every single day, I was giving my life to Jesus, giving my life to Jesus, giving my life to Jesus. Uh, the big passage in the scriptures that really haunted me as a teenager uh, were the Garden of Gethsemane. Because I just thought, well, there is Jesus, right? And Jesus is, he's like offering the perfect prayer of commitment, isn't he? There he is in the garden, flat on his face before God saying, God, take me, use me, your will be done. And I thought to myself, I need to do it like Jesus, right? You know, I had the what would Jesus do bracelet. You know, what would Jesus do? He would go into a scary place and give his life to God in ever more melodramatic ways, okay? And so that's what I sought to do. I volunteered to walk our dog near where we lived, and uh, there was a scary forest near where we lived. And so I would go into the scary forest by moonlight, okay? Just like Gethsemane, right? And I would literally press my face into the mud, and I would say, God, take me, use me, your will be done. And what did I feel? Nothing. And so the next day, I'd press my face harder into the mud. And again, nothing. And again, nothing. And again, nothing. By age 18, how do you think I was feeling about God? I hated him. I hated him. I just thought, here, here I am giving my life to him the whole time. And what do I get back in return? <laughs> and by age 18, I left home and I left my faith behind. And I even remember thinking, you know what? Even if there is a hell for deserters like me, it couldn't be worse than the slavery I've just been in for the last decade. Continually giving my life to God and never knowing whether he's received me never knowing if he's given himself to me. And it made me abandon the faith. What was it that brought me back? Well, it was, it was this book, right? This book brought me back. When I started to read this book, not as the drill sergeant yelling in your face, when I started to read this book as the herald of victory saying, look at Christ, look at Christ, he's given for you. When I started to read this book this way, it brought reformation in my heart, reformation in my life. And my prayer is that reading the scriptures in this way will bring reformation in your heart and life too. Let's uh, get up to speed with uh, reformation in history and how scripture played a role. So if you were in the 16th century, 
um, it's a bit like growing up in a Christian home. Like everybody grew up in a Christian home. You were just, you just kind of, you went to church by law. Okay, you were you were deemed a Christian by law, and you went to the service, and you probably didn't understand anything that was said really, apart from the sermon. The sermon probably would have been in English, but everything else would have been in Latin. And uh, and perhaps you perhaps you know this that. Um, uh, you know that you know the bit in in a communion service in more traditional churches. They 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 read the words that Jesus says in Matthew chapter twenty six. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood uh, shed for you. But of course they'd say it in Latin, right? Nobody spoke Latin, but the priests would say hoc es corpus meum, hoc es corpus meum. And if you were sitting at the back as as this peasant, you know what it sounds like to you? Hocus pocus, hocus pocus, hocus pocus. That's where the phrase came from. Hocus pocus, hoc es corpus meum. That's what the priest was saying. The priest was giving you this beautiful picture of Christ broken for you like bread. Christ poured out for you like wine. It's this beautiful gospel picture. But if you don't speak Latin, all you hear is hocus pocus, hocus pocus, hocus pocus. Now, if you stayed on for the sermon, what you would have heard is that uh, you are a filthy sinner under God's judgment. But don't worry. God has given us the church And the church has a great system whereby you can make your way to heaven, okay? And uh, if you do your religious bit, you light a candle every morning and you say your prayers and you do your confessions and you use the seven sacraments of the church and you jump through these different hurdles, then you might outweigh your bad deeds with your good deeds. You probably won't in this life. But never mind, in the next life, there's a place called purgatory. Don't look for it in the Bible, it's not there. But there's a place called purgatory, apparently, where the system continues. And you can burn off your sins for thousands, maybe millions of years. Sounds like good news, right? And yet it was packaged to people as a thoroughly reasonable thing to do. One of the, one of the slogans that preachers used to say was, God will not deny grace to those who do their best. God will not deny grace to those who do their best, which sounds great, doesn't it? But then you ask the question, am I doing my best? Really? Couldn't I be doing better? Probably. And this is the system that had gripped people. Now, as I say, no one understood the Scriptures because the Scriptures, A, they weren't really in... in, uh, uh, in, in, in common circulation because the printing press was only invented in the 1440s. And so people really didn't have scriptures and the scriptures that they did have were not in their common language. Did you know that in 1519 in this country, seven people were burned at the stake for, for teaching their children the Lord's Prayer in English? That was their crime. These seven parents had been teaching their children the Lord's Prayer in English. But no, 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 no. the church did not allow that. You weren't allowed to know this book. This book's too difficult for you. No, you need, you need the priests to be able to interpret it. You need the Pope to be able to tell you what it means. It's best if you guys just shut up and get on with the system. That was the teaching of the church. And then Martin Luther, 1505. You've heard about the story, Martin Luther. In the storm, he cries out, St. Anne, help me, I will become a monk. And so he goes in and he becomes a monk. And Martin Luther was like me on steroids, me as a teenager on steroids, okay? He was the most serious, religious-minded person you could ever have. And he, he threw himself into the monastic life. Eight prayer times a day, no problem at all. You'd have to get up at 3 a.m. for one of these prayer times, no problem at all. Martin Luther loved it. 
And he kept on doing it and kept on doing it and kept on doing it, kept on giving his life to Jesus, kept on giving his life to Jesus, kept on giving his life to Jesus. And you know what he found? He found that he kept on hating God all the more. Isn't that interesting? In 1510, he went on this pilgrimage to Rome, and he did the thing that all the truly spiritual people did in Rome. They, cli- they climbed the Scala Sancta, the holy stairs. And uh, mythology said that basically these were the stairs that were in Jerusalem, and these stairs had actually been stood on by Jesus himself. That's what the story said anyway. I don't think, don't think it was true, but here are these holy stairs, and you could stand in the very place where Jesus was. And if you, so the belief went, if you climbed up each stair, preferably on your knees, and if you said the Lord's Prayer and kissed each step, by the time you got to the top, you'd have your sins forgiven, right? That was, that was the belief, right? So everyone's flocking to Rome because, you know, the system, the millions of years in purgatory, they don't sound like a lot of fun, do they? So I've gotta, I'm going to flock to purgatory. I'm going to climb up the Scala Sancta on my knees. And Martin Luther in 1510, he climbed to the top of those stairs. And at the top, he said to himself, who knows if this is so? And I just think that's a, a really crystallized picture of what medieval Christianity was all about. You climb the stair, you climb the stair, you climb the stair, you climb the stair, and who knows if it has worked? Luther didn't know. But one good thing about his monastic life is that it got him lots of Bible. And so he was studying the Scriptures loads. And in 1512, he even became a doctor of the Bible. He was a professor in the University of Wittenberg, and he was teaching through the Scriptures. And he got to the Book of Romans. Should we, should we open up, if you've got a Bible on you, Let's open up to the book of Romans, and uh, I've even got actually I've got it on this slide as well. Romans, Romans one verse seventeen, and let me show you what the scriptures did to Martin Luther, and let's pray that it does the same thing in our own lives. Okay, Martin Luther got to Romans chapter one verse seventeen, and he says, in the gospel. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So Luther read this verse, and to begin with, he hated the verse. This verse really got under his skin, which is a great thing when the Bible gets under your skin. It's a really good thing. The Bible got under his skin, and what he really hated was this phrase, the righteousness of God. Because what he read, when he read the righteousness of God, he thought this was God's standard. And God's standard is way up there. And the gospel reveals to you that God has really high standards. Have a go if you think you're hard enough. That's what he thought the gospel was all about. The gospel reveals God's really high standards. But if you're sold out for Jesus enough, maybe you could get over the bar, right? But Luther knew himself enough to know that he could not get over the bar. And so he just, he just read this verse as bad news. This seemed to be a standard that he could not live up to. But then, you know what he did? He did good Bible study. It changed his life and it changed the world. Good Bible study does that, okay? What did Luther do? He writes about this at the end of his life as he's looking back to this time when he makes his Reformation breakthrough. He says, Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. I did not love, yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. Okay? This is what his Bible study was doing to him before he understood the true nature of the Scriptures. 
But then, what happens? As he's reading this verse, Romans 1.17, I love this. Um, as I'm reading through these quotes of Luther, I want you to be writing down or thinking about all the ways that Luther handles the Scriptures, all the phrases he uses to describe the Scriptures, all the things he uses to describe the way he's interacting with the Scriptures. Think about that, because we'll have a little uh, chat time in a second. Nevertheless, as he's got Romans 1.17 in front of him on the desk, he says, I beat impatiently upon Paul, most ardently desiring to know what he wanted. Isn't that great? He's like, what do you mean? What do you mean? Like, that's good Bible study, right? It seems really unholy, doesn't it? But he's like, I want to know what you mean. Tell me what you want. He beats impatiently on the Scriptures. He doesn't just mean with his fist. He also means thinking about it richly and deeply. Most ardently desiring to know what he wanted. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words. Oh, that's interesting. Good Bible study means you look at the context. And one of the things he looked at in the context was... Do you notice this? As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. It's a verse from Habakkuk chapter 2. And Paul was absolutely turned upside down when he understood what Habakkuk 2 was writing about. And then 15 centuries later, Luther is absolutely turned upside down by what Habakkuk 2 had said all those years ago. The righteous shall live by faith. And he's starting to think, you know what? That righteousness of God, it's not so much a standard that's held above you, it's a gift that's given to you. And that by faith, you can be counted righteous. Could that be true? Well, as he heeds the context of the words and as he meditates day and night, he says, here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. Hallelujah. This is what happens when you do good Bible study, when you beat on the Scriptures, when you meditate day and night, when you look at the context, it births a reformation. And suddenly the righteousness of God is not a standard over you, it's a gift given to you. Hallelujah. He feels like he's entered paradise through open gates. Now this brings him into, into direct uh, uh, contradiction with the authorities, the Pope himself, uh, issues uh, a, a bill that he is excommunicated from the church and he receives this, this piece of paper that he's excommunicated from the church. And what does Luther do? Luther being Luther, he just burns it and he carries on. And he keeps writing and he writes and he writes. And by now the printing press is just pumping out all this great gospel literature and people are having their lives turned around. But Luther is in deep, deep trouble. He's summoned in, in 1521 to the Diet of Worms and he is asked to recant of all his books. There's a, there's a table with all his books and they say, will you recant of all of this? And after thinking about his answer for 24 hours, here's what he says. And again, be thinking about how he conceives of the Scriptures. Be thinking about how he's handling the Bible. He says, look, unless I'm convinced by Scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. So this is an amazing scene. You know, Luther has, like, the emperor is there. The pope is standing behind this meeting saying, you're out of here, buddy. You're, you know, you're, you're going to be burnt as a heretic. He's got the empire. He's got the whole church against him. And he just says, here I stand. I can do no other. This book... 
This book birthed that Reformation in Luther. And he said, look, I'm captive to this. And what's fascinating for me is, as Luther says, you know what? It's not, it's not that the Pope stands above this and tells me what it means. It's that the Bible judges everything. And as I am captive to this book, you know what it made him? It made him absolutely free for the world. I find that fascinating. It's a fascinating interaction, isn't it? You're captive to the Bible. And you just say, I've just got to go where this book goes. I'm captive to the Bible. And therefore, he is utterly liberated in the world. What a free thinker Luther was. Like, think about it. What a free thinker. The entire empire is saying, think differently. The whole church is saying, think differently. And because he's captive to the Bible, he is able to be a free thinker. He's absolutely captive to the word and liberated in the world. And he does that uh, really because of his view of the Scriptures. Let's think of all these different ways that Luther has thought about the Bible. He talks about being convinced by Scripture. He talks about being captive to the Word. He talks about beating impatiently on the Bible. He talks about giving heed to the context. He talks about meditating day and night. And as he treats this book in this way, there's a reformation in his heart that birthed a reformation in history. Do you think it could do the same in your life? Do you think it could? I think so. It certainly did it in my life. I'll tell you that story in a second. But um, let's just think about what the Scriptures actually are. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Should we turn? If you've got Bibles, you can turn or you can have a look on the screen. But 2 Timothy chapter 3. And I'm just going to ask for um, people to give me answers to these three questions once I've written it. We're going to think about... What is the Bible? Who is the Bible given to? to? And why is it being given? What is the Bible? Who's the Bible being given to? And why is it being given? Okay? So as we read, think about your answers to that, and I'll ask you in a second. From childhood, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, that means rebuke, telling off, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Okay, so just shout out, what, what, is, what is the Bible according to these verses? What is the Bible? Yeah, it's been breathed out by the Holy Spirit himself. God has a breath, the Spirit, and that breath carries his word. Okay? This is God's speech written. The Holy Spirit carrying the very voice of God to you. That's what this book is. Is that how you treat this book? We all want to hear from God. Many people tell me, I, I, I just want to hear from God. And perhaps they've got some particular issue in their life that they're thinking about. I just want to hear from God. I just want to hear from God. I just want to hear from God. And my first question is, how dusty is your Bible? How dusty is it? Because here is God's clear word, the speech of God written. The Holy Spirit is whispering in your ear. He has a breath. <sighs> What's he saying? The sacred writings will tell you. The Holy Scriptures will tell you. What is this book? Do you want God to speak to you? Open up this book. And then who is this book given to? Who is this book given to, do you think? What do you reckon? Mankind, yeah? Yeah. And what is it assuming about mankind? What are these verses assuming about what mankind are like? What do you think? 
incomplete. Yeah, yeah. We need, we need teaching. We need repu- reproof, rebuke. We need correction. We need training in righteousness. Okay? We are fools. We need telling off. <laughs> we need to be told what to do. And we need to be trained up because we're simple. Psalm 19 verse 7 says that the Word of God has been given to make the simple wise. That's what the Bible thinks of you and me, okay? We're simpletons. You and I are simpletons, and we need this book to make us wise. But that's good, doesn't it? Because it it means that all of us are being addressed in this book. It's not just for the clever, clever types. It's not just for the theologians. It's not just for the priests. This book addresses simpletons like you and me. Which is why what Luther did, the very first thing he did after he was excommunicated from the church, the very first thing he did was translate the Bible into German so people could read it in their own language. Because the Bible is for everyone. For simple things. It's for you. It's for me. And then why has the Bible been given? Why, why do you think the Bible's being given? Anyone? How about this as a reason? This this book is able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. That's why this book has been written. And this is the difference between the drill sergeant yelling in your face and the herald of victory telling you Christ has done it. You know why the Bible's been given given to you? Not to give you a lecture, but to give you a Lord. Not to give you a lecture, but to give you Jesus and his victory for you. That's what this book has been given to you for. So as you wake up in the morning, and maybe your Bible sort of sits on your bedside table or something, and you wake up in the morning with one eye and you look at your Bible, and your Bible looks back at you, how do you feel about your Bible in that moment? I'm very tempted to think, this is a drill sergeant who's about to yell in my face and tell me what to do. It's not, though. This is a herald of victory saying, Glenn... You're a simpleton, you're a fool, you're a sinner. You cannot take on Satan, you cannot take on this day, but Christ has done it for you. That's what this book has been given to you for. This book is not a sack of rocks that you've got to carry through the day. This book is wings that help you soar. That's what this book is. Is that how we treat it? Perhaps it's time today. Maybe maybe take some time today and just think to yourself, how have I been treating the Scriptures Are there ways in which I can take time apart and meditate on the Scriptures day and night? You know, on on Sunday morning, I was was, um, reading my Bible, and I I got to this place in 1 Peter 4, and there were just five words that just absolutely went through me. Let's see if I can remember them. The five words were just, you share in Christ's sufferings. Peter was addressing some, some really suffering Christians, and he said to these guys, you share in Christ's sufferings. And it would be so easy for those five words just to be gone and you go on into your day. And I just thought, I need to pause because these words, they seem to be saying something. So I started to meditate on them. Do you ever do this with the Scriptures? I started to think, you share in Christ's sufferings. 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 Makes a difference, doesn't it? To take that time, meditate on the word day and night, give heed to the context, beat on it, and it brings reformation in our lives. Let me just finish about telling you about uh, how it brought reformation in my life. Uh, 
So where was the story up to? The story was up to I'd left home, I'd left my faith behind because I just couldn't do it like Jesus. I kept on giving my life to Jesus and he seemed like he didn't want it. And so I thought, well, if God doesn't want me, I don't want him. And away I went to university to try to have as good a time as I could without him. It doesn't work. It never works. What brought me back? A Bible study. See, a friend invited me to this Bible study and, and we happened to be studying the Garden of Gethsemane. And before he'd even started, I, I, I said, oh, I, I can't handle this passage. It's just, it's just too much. I just don't think I can do it like Jesus. And my friend said to me, Glenn, do you think you're Jesus? I said, well, no, maybe, just a little bit, maybe, you know. He said, Glenn, in this story, you are not Jesus. You know who you are, Glenn. You're Peter. And what's Peter doing in the story? Sleeping rubbish, foolish, failed Peter, and Jesus does it all for him. You see, in Hebrews 5, it talks about Jesus with loud cries being heard by God in that garden of Gethsemane. You know why he did that? The passage ends by saying, he became our high priest. You know why he's praying in that garden? Number one reason is that he is your high priest praying for you when you can't pray, when you don't pray, when you won't pray. Jesus did it for you. And all of a sudden, it just flipped all my understanding. I thought, you know what? Before we ever talk about giving our lives to Jesus, and there is a place for that, absolutely, but before we ever talk about that, let us soak in this Bible truth that Jesus has given his life for us. When I got that truth, you know how I felt? I felt like I'd entered paradise through open gates. It brought a reformation in my life. It brought a reformation in history. It'll bring a reformation in your life too. Let me finish with um, a poem that I wrote uh, about this called uh, I Gave My Life to Jesus. And uh, really, it just takes, takes you through this story of having been a medieval teenager. It's the scriptures that will absolutely turn your understanding around. It's not the drill sergeant hammering on you. It's the herald of victory, giving you joy and release. So this is a poem called, I Gave My Life to Jesus. I gave my life to Jesus about a thousand times at teenage shrines of rare experience. They'd blare delirious, then dare allegiance. I'd swear obedience, soul-bared and serious, each prayer more daring than the previous. On stage, the preacher saw we staunch hardcore flock to the fort and knock, knock, knock on heaven's door. He claimed salvations like he was keeping score. Yet none were sure but he, and none doubted more than me. So I prayed again to firm cement it, making sure I really meant it. Vowed my life to be amended, willed my all to dust descended, gave my heart to be expended. Then when all my prayers were ended, nothing but myself lamented. Oh, I pretended all was mended and extended lifted hands, but within I could not understand what more could he demand. I gave my life to Jesus a thousand different ways. No single day would pass without this act. I would contract to yield my every part, to make one more fresh start, to be more set apart. And in return, I'd yearn for him to impart the merest trace of grace into my heart. I gave my life to Jesus, though faith continued flagging, doubts nagging, zeal dragging down to duty's basement. 
Still, at least I had my bracelet. I asked my bracelet, bracelet, what should I do? The bracelet counseled, what would Jesus do? And in answer, all I could think is that he would sink to his knees in passioned pleas as at Gethsemane. And there in almighty surrender, render all to God who silent let him fall. So what should I do? I too would heed that call. I likewise would sprawl before the splendor. I likewise would make that pattern my crawl. And yet, there was nothing. And all the while the preachers told me, give control, not part but wholly. Give your life, your heart, your all. But rarely do I recall being told what he gave my Lord to save. Oh, they slipped it in to conscript us. They gripped us with Jesus whipped, our Savior stripped, the blood it dripped from the cross. But they ripped it from its gospel frame to say, now you, you do the same. So Christ's offering was flipped. We were guilt-tripped by the very act that saved us. And so it was engraved, instilled. The cross is a standard unfulfilled by us. Oh, but we tried. My, how we would try. We'd bend the knee and bear the load. It was the very least we owed. I gave my life to Jesus, but somewhere down the road, I slid My faith undid, even amid my church, my prayers, even as I bid for heaven's care. Beneath the lid, the venom hid. I was your youth group's keenest kid, but no one hated God like I did. See, with him, it's just take, take, take without a break. His thirst for blood, who can slake? At least vampires get you once. This God holds perpetual hunts. I gave my life to Jesus, but I guess it was no good. Did what I could to appease him, but no pleasing seemed possible. So this elder brother turned prodigal. And I could chronicle the years headed east. It was a far country, unpoliced. It was a famine, dressed up as a feast. A pigsty passed off as release. But there, at the end of the track, when all was pitch black, there, what brought me back? was this book. Because this book, as I read, did not say what they said. To those under piety's dread, with their leaders misled, this book said, repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God is at hand. There he stands in your stead. Your king lifts your head. He has shouldered your dread, arms outstretched till they bled. As I read, I met him, the father's sheer gift. Now offered to lift those who are cowering, the feeble empowering, the filthy clean showering, the lowly now towering in him. So that night on his knees, Gethsemane's pleas, those prayers were said for me. Because I am not Jesus there in the garden begging for pardon. I'm Peter. And in spite of all my boasts, I'm asleep at my post and Jesus does it all for me. Did I give my life to Jesus? Talk about cart before horse. Can we resource the source who flows like a river? He is the giver and we just receive. That's what it means for us to believe. So 
So I'll leave an appeal. To the preachers who feel that they must stir up zeal, then let it be his we reveal. You say, give your heart. This says, Christ is the donor. You say, yield your life. This says, he was always the owner. You say, get on fire. This says, you are the light. You say, keep running to God. This says, walk in Christ. You say, dare to be a missional, intentional, incarnational, contextualized, no compromise, countercultural, radical, red letter, fully devoted disciple. This says, follow. You say, get hungry for God. This says, take, eat, swallow. You say, press into God. This says, you are hidden in Christ. You say, be a world changer. This says, lead a quiet life. You say, surrender all. This says, you are not your own. You say, step up to the plate. This says, you're raised to the throne. You say, burn out. This says, shine. You say, work hard on your personal relationship with Jesus. This says, I am my beloved's, and he is mine. Folks, look at the book and unhook from this wearisome, will-driven view. Stop giving your life to Jesus. He's the giver delivered for you. Thanks. Great. Can we thank Glenn? Amazing stuff. I hope you all really enjoyed this morning. I know I have. If you want to check out more of Glenn, speaklife.org.uk. And uh, there's more spoken word on there as well. Great. Great to have his gift with us here this morning. Um, just, just to say again, if you haven't got a copy of the chapter from Rooted, there's uh, more copies down here. That's a, a Reformation chapter from a forthcoming church history book, which is designed for those with no background at all. So these are free there at the front. You're very welcome to make yourself uh, avail yourself of those. Uh, tomorrow's actually our last day, which is incredibly sad. Um, and I'm going to be speaking on our work and God's glory everything being to the glory of God alone. Uh, I'm really looking forward to going through that with you. So uh, we'll be back here 11.30 tomorrow. Thanks for being with us. Okay.